ever asked yourself um, the question, uh, was I sincere when I made my initial profession of faith? When I, when I came to Jesus, did I really trust him for my salvation? Or uh, does my ongoing failure to resist temptation and my ongoing ability to manage to mess up time and time again in my life mean that I'm actually not um, one of his children? These are the sorts of questions that the devil constantly wants to plant into our minds and bring doubts into our lives about whether or not we are truly God's children. And they're the sorts of questions that can haunt followers of Jesus, even if we don't truly understand, or especially if we don't truly understand the totality of what Christ did for us on the cross. And this was made um, clear to me through an experience that I had when I was a, a, young, a young child. I was uh, nine or ten years old. And I was pretty new in my faith at that point. And my parents brought me to um, this church, the series of church functions. There were movies about the end times. And I brought a couple of friends from school with me. And uh, one of my friends actually brought his older sister. She was a teenager at the time. And we watched these movies. And at the, at, at the end of each one of those movies, I'll have to tell you, even though I had... Um, I'd place my trust in Jesus Christ. I was terrified about those movies. They talked about the end times and what would happen to believers and what would happen to non-believers. I don't know if you've seen the um, Left Behind movies with Nicolas Cage and Kirk Cameron, but they're probably pretty similar to those. But I'll have to say, based on my experience, they're probably a lot more um, jarring and terrifying. And uh, I'll tell you, even though I had become a Christian shortly before that, those movies scared me to the point that again and again, at the end of each movie, I had to make sure that my salvation was in, or that my trust was in Jesus Christ. And the friends that I brought told me afterwards that they actually had nightmares after those movies. At the end of one of the movies, the teenage, um, the teenage girl that had come with us, the one sister, left bawling because she was so terrified. And... Uh, they were also scared that immediately they, they asked what they needed to do. And so I talked with my parents, and my ter- parents talked with the pastor of the church, and, um, and the pastor led them in a prayer. And, and that seemed to be that. But for some reason, over time, I kind of noticed that their trust in Jesus didn't really seem to stick. Personally, at 10 years old, I, I wasn't really much of a disciple maker, so it's not like every day I was walking with them and praying with them and, you know, discussing the word with them. But, I, you know, I would, we went to, I would invite them out to church on Sundays, and we went to a midweek uh, boys group, and I would invite my friends to that. Um, but after that initial scare, they, they really didn't seem that interested in God or in Jesus or in the Bible. And Although over the years I've, I've lost connection with, uh, with those friends, um, I've noticed that on, on my Facebook feed, some of my siblings have contact with them. And based on what I've seen, I would, I would have to say that I question whether or not they are still following Jesus today. And so for me, that raised the question, could, is it possible that that could happen to me? Was I truly sincere when I first asked Jesus to forgive me and to save me? Have I truly trusted in Jesus for my salvation? Do all the times that I've messed up, all the times that I've continued to fail, all the times that I've continued to fall mean that I'm no longer acceptable before God? And I'll tell you what, I was so scared of the answers to those questions when I was a child. Every night I would go to bed and I would pray some sort of a prayer to ask Jesus to accept me back and to forgive me and to make sure that I was a child. I probably prayed a prayer like that hundreds of times when I was a kid. Literally hundreds of times. 
And the funny thing is that for the longest time as a child, I had no idea what I was being saved from or what I was being saved for. I wasn't um, initially raised in a Christian home, didn't go to church, never read the Bible, hadn't heard Bible stories. And it wasn't until my dad remarried when I was about seven or eight that we actually started going to church. Up until then, Christmas was literally only about Santa Claus and getting gifts, and Easter was literally about the Easter bunny and getting eggs and... Um, and chocolate Easter bunnies. And so when I was first introduced to the Christian faith, I would pray for salvation, and I had this picture in my mind that what I was being saved from was maybe falling off the edge of a cliff and angels catching me before I hit the ground. Or maybe I was walking across the street and I was going to get hit by a bus and an angel miraculously saved me. Or maybe we lived in Toronto at the time, and um, I, uh, you know, we heard about gang violence occasionally. I thought maybe you know, a bullet, a, an angel was going to catch a bullet for me, and that's what I was being saved from. I had no clue what I was being saved from or saved for. And actually, by all accounts, until I was about eight or nine, um, I, was, I was a pretty rotten kid. You could ask Krista some of the stories she's probably heard. My mom had left my dad, and uh, he was raising me, and he wasn't really, he wasn't a man of faith. He had never gone to church. He'd never read the Bible. Um, he was doing the best he could at that point, but um, my brother and I were a bit of a handful. You know, he worked during the day. He came home at night. It was kind of a struggle just to make sure we got fed and watered and put to bed. Um, so probably, I mean, you know, we were probably much like most boys at that age, but with a little less control. I don't think I'd ever set foot in a church. I had no real exposure to, uh, to Christian faith. And I'm pretty sure that at that point in my life, I mean, I had a hard time dealing with right and wrong. I'm pretty sure I had no concept of what sin was. But uh, my dad ended up remarried, and uh, we began attending church. And faith, faith was, uh, was introduced to my family at that point in time. And, uh, you know, my mom kind of, my stepmom kind of put tighter reins on us and got a little bit under control. And eventually I think that, you know, I might have began to get it. I don't think we ever truly fully get it, but I started to get it. I started to understand that sin was the things that I did wrong, the things that offended God, and the things that could offend other people. And they were the things that kept me from a relationship with God, with my Creator. And I began to get that Jesus came so that I could be forgiven of those sins. That he came, he walked on the earth, he lived a perfect life, he suffered, and he, he suffered the punishment for my sins, for the things that I had done wrong, so that I could have a right relationship with God. So that we could all be restored to a relationship with our Creator. And that, uh, you know, I was, I was starting to begin to understand that my salvation was saving me not from some, some wild and crazy death, but it was saving me from eternal separation with God. And that is what Easter is all about. It's about restoring us to a right relationship with our Savior. If you weren't here last Sunday, I'd encourage you to listen to Mark's sermon. He talked about yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He talked about how what Christ did in the past, yesterday, affects us today. It wasn't just an event in history. It wasn't just about some historical character that died a horrific death and that while he lived, teach some great things. It was about a Savior who came and who died, and the impact of his death affects us today. It's had an impact all throughout history. And how what we do with what Christ did for us yesterday affects not only today, but affects tomorrow and every day after that. 
And so if you didn't have it, if you weren't here last Sunday or didn't have a chance to listen to that, I would encourage you to go online and check it out. But today I want to talk about the question that I seem to be dealing with as a youngster. Even though I believe that Christ did those things, even though I believe that Christ could have that impact in my life, I still had those doubts as a youngster. And to be quite honest with you, occasionally when I'm in a dark time in life, sometimes that, those ugly questions still rear their head today as an adult. How can I know for certain that my faith is real, that I've been saved, that despite all of my failing, I can still stand before God acceptable? There's a number of places in the Bible that you can turn to that will give you a glimpse uh, as to the truth of, of how we come before God and how we're made acceptable. But today, I want to briefly look at 1 John 5. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, we're going to look at uh, 1 John 5, uh, 1 to 6. But I want to tell you a little bit about what John says at the closing of, uh, of 1 John. He writes this, <clears throat> I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's saying, I've, wrote, I've written this entire book so that you can have assurance of your eternal life, of your standing before God. In other words, he's saying, if you, if you, and if you read further on, you'll see that, these, that there's uh, his closing statements, you'll see that this bears itself out in a number of ways, but he's saying, I know that there are those among you that are unsure of your faith. I know that there are those among you who down the road are going to begin to doubt your acceptance before God. But I have written all of this to assure you of your faith. And that assurance isn't just for the people that, that John was writing to, it's for us as well. And this is important. It's, it's commonly held that 1 John was written by the Apostle John, who was one of, of Jesus' 12 apostles that walked with him, that saw his life, that heard his teachings, that witnessed his death, that witnessed his resurrection. And the important thing about that is John was, one, was, was only one of the 12 that managed to live a full natural life. The rest of the, of the disciples are believed to have been persecuted and died an early death because of their persecution. But John lived a long time and acted as a witness to the, to the, to the things that Christ did, to his death and his, his resurrection. And as a result of that, when John is writing this book towards the end of his life, he's writing this as one of the last people that could stand and say, I saw what Christ did. It's true. I saw Jesus' death. It's true. I saw his resurrection. I can testify that it actually happened. And having that kind of testimony would have been a real assurance to the people that he was writing to and the people that he lived with. But he realized that as time passed on, as he passed on and he was no longer with them, the thing that naturally happens with people is that doubts begin to form in their minds. As there's no longer people that can say, I saw what happened and stand here as a witness to that, people would begin to doubt. And so he wrote this to assure Jesus' followers. There are a number of things that John wrote, but much of it can be summed up in John 5, 1 to 6. So if you'll read along with me. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit who is truth confirms it with his testimony. So the first thing John tells us here is that we can be assured of our standing before God when we believe. We have to believe in what Jesus Christ did in order to have assurance of our standing before God. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. I want you to picture this. So this goes back uh, uh, numerous years before Christ. There's two Jews in, in Egypt, and they're standing and talking the night, bef- the night of the Passover. And we'll give them the names Mr. Smith and Mr. Brown, because those are two most Jewish names I could think of. Um, so they're having this discussion before the Passover, and Mr. Smith says to Mr. Brown, aren't you a little nervous about tonight? And Mr. Brown says, nervous? What do we have to be nervous about? It's all been laid out for us. Wait a second. God told us exactly what to do. Haven't, haven't you actually slain the lamb and painted the doorposts and the lentils with its blood? Haven't you done that? Haven't you packed and gotten ready to go? You know, God said that after these things, we'll be, we'll be released from Egypt. Haven't you done that? Don't you have the whole Passover feast ready to go and to eat with your family? Aren't you ready? And Mr. Smith says, of course, of course I've done all that. I'm not stupid. But it's, it's still pretty scary. With all that's been going on around here lately, the water turning to blood, the darkness throughout days, Huge infestations of blood. And now this talk of the firstborn being killed. I mean, that's, that's scary stuff. It's all right for you. You have three sons. I have one son. And God talked about the firstborn son being killed. I've only got one. I love my son. And the angel of death, death is passing, passing through here tonight. Of course, I've prepared. But it's still pretty scary. I mean, I'll be glad when tonight is over. That's one response. And Mr. Brown replies, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. And so that night, the Passover, the angel of death swept through the land and killed the firstborn of numerous people. Which one of those do you think lost their firstborn child? And the answer, of course, is that neither of them did. And why is that? Because death doesn't pass over them on the grounds of the intensity or the clarity of their faith. Death passed over them based on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. And it's true for us today. We're not saved based on the intensity or the clarity of our faith. We're we're saved on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. We're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is the only assurance of our standing before God. That is the only grounds of our faith. It's not the intensity of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith that saves us. So often, I think we can lose sight of this truth. At times, we might think, God, I know you'll accept me if only I try just a little bit harder. Or sometimes, we might be tempted to think, God, I know you'll accept me if I'm only just a little bit more sincere in my faith then I know you'll accept me. And as holy and as righteous as both of those things might sound, we have to come back to the fact again and again and again that the final and only and ultimate and real grounds for God's acceptance of us 
is through the sacrifice of his son, through his life and his death and his resurrection. There's nothing that we have done. There is nothing that we could do that could add to that. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we're made acceptable before God. As soon as we start to add anything to that, as soon as we start thinking things, and and maybe we don't think them uh, consciously, maybe it's just in the back of our minds, or maybe we inadvertently think them, but as soon as we start thinking that the grounds of our acceptance before God is Jesus' death plus how hard I try, or that the grounds of our acceptance before God is Jesus' death plus the intensity of my faith, or Jesus' death plus my ability to resist temptation on an ongoing basis, then we're saying that it's not Jesus' death that's enough to save us, that there's something that we can do, and that goes against what Scripture teaches us. That actually becomes destructive of our faith because we start focusing on what it is that we can do rather than what it is that God did for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so our first assurance that we, are, that we can stand before God is, that we're, that is, is our belief. Romans 10.9 says it in a slightly different way. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what Paul adds here is the open declaration of our faith in Jesus Christ. And many people would use this passage And others like it about professing one's faith or about baptism as making those things necessary for our salvation. We need to be really clear on this, that these passages shouldn't be understood to mean that we're saved by means of some audible thing that we say or some visual profession of our faith. Salvation is a gift of God through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us not by anything that we do, not by any words that we say, or not by any actions that we perform. These were both outward signs of our repentance and our identification as followers of Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example, and this might be kind of a simple example. But about a year ago, I became really um, interested and amazed in lentils. (laughs) My kids will tell you this. They're actually an amazing source of nutrition. They're a great source of protein. They're a great source of fiber. They're a great source of iron and many other um, amazing nutrients. And on top of all that, they're super inexpensive. You could eat off $5 of lentils for a month. And depending on what type of, that you use, they can be the centerpiece of a dish. Or you can actually take them, depending on what kind you can use, and hide them in a dish. And my kids will testify, I've put lentils in muffins, I've put lentils in waffles, I've put them in pancakes and meatloaf and stews, and the list goes on and on and on. So you can put them there and you don't even know they're there. Ever since I discovered lentils, if I've ever talked to any of you about food, you can probably verify I've talked about lentils. I love lentils. They're amazing. But you know what? If I discovered lentils and I found that they really didn't improve my food, maybe they were much more obvious than I thought, I didn't enjoy their flavor, I didn't enjoy their texture, I found that they weren't as nutritious as I thought, I probably wouldn't talk about them. You know, I don't make a dish and then if it's eh, mediocre, say, oh, you should try this dish I just made. It was kind of eh. Nobody does that, right? Anyhow, Ever since I discovered lentils, I talk about them. And just for those of you who might be interested, this year is the year of the pulses. Lentils are a pulse. You should try to get more of those in your diet. They're good stuff. (laughs) 
So do you get what I'm saying about lentils? You get what I'm saying about talking about stuff? If you don't get it, here's something that's probably a little more recognizable. If you've been to this church more than uh, four or five times, you'll probably realize that there are many Toronto Maple Leaf fans in this church. How do you know that? Because they talk about it all the time. Um, if you've heard one of Mark's sermons, or more than three of Mark's sermons, you've probably heard him talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs. I, I, I said last night, it's probably one of the things that he talks about more than anything else in his sermons besides uh, Scripture itself and his family. And he said, well, that might not be true. I probably talk about cats more. But he talks about Maple Leafs, the Maple Leafs, an awful lot. And why is that? He's a fan of the Maple Leafs. It's an external sign. If he didn't associate with the Maple Leafs, he would probably never mention them. Now, the fact that he aligns himself with the Toronto Maple Leafs and he talks about them doesn't make him a Toronto Maple Leaf. And so it is with followers of Jesus Christ. The fact that someone talks about Scripture or talks about Jesus doesn't necessarily make them a follower of Jesus Christ. What needs to come first is that act of faith that belief in what Christ did for us. And then when you have that, when you talk about Jesus Christ, it's a sign that you trust in him. And what's, what makes this all the more true in the New Testament is that when Paul wrote this, when he wrote that you, you confess with your mouth that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he knew that only a true devout follower of Jesus or devout follower of Jesus Christ would ever profess their faith in him. And why is that? Because at that time in history... Anyone who said, hey, I'm a Christian, would immediately become the target of persecution, would risk their life, would risk being thrown in jail for their faith, would risk possibly the punishment of death. Only an actual follower of Jesus Christ would risk professing their faith under those circumstances. And so when Paul wrote this, public confession was not a prerequisite or a requirement of salvation. Rather, it's asserting that when someone trusted in Christ and subsequently professed him as Lord, knowing that persecution was sure to come, that individual gave evidence of genuine salvation. Those who are saved will confess Jesus Christ as Lord because he's already instilled faith in their hearts. It's the same with baptism and with all good works. Public confession and baptism and good works are not a means of salvation. They're the evidence of the fact that Christ is in us and has changed us. They're a distinguishing characteristic that serve as a sign of our salvation. And this leads me into the second kind of set of assurances that John talks about, that our faith is truly in Christ. First John, in 1 John, John speaks about certain signs that can confirm our faith. And one of those signs is, in, is a change in our attitude towards sin. If you look at 1 John 1, 8-9, it says, If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. And you have to remember, when John wrote this, he wasn't writing this as an evangelistic message. He wasn't writing this to unbelievers. He was writing this to an established church, to people who had already put their faith in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, if we claim we have no sin, even though you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're only fooling yourself and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. 
Now, a lot of well-intentioned people will use this as a means of leading people to Jesus Christ. But as I said, this, this passage was not written to unbelievers. It was written to people who were already followers of Jesus Christ. And so John is recognizing that even as followers of Jesus, we will end up messing up. He's also acknowledging if we don't own up to that, if we try to fool ourselves and to fool others into believing that we don't sin, the only people we're fooling is ourselves. And so one of the evidence of true faith is that followers of Jesus confess their sins. And confess in this passage, when John talks about it here, doesn't mean to recite every single wrong that we have ever done. Rather, what it means is that we begin to agree with God on sin. It means that the more we become like God, the more He begins to change us, the more we begin to, to realize what sin is, the more we begin to identify it, the more we begin to hate the sin that so easily ensnares us. He's saying that our perspectives will change. He's saying that where we once used to love sin, we'll now hate it. We'll acknowledge that we're sinful, but we'll recognize that we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. We'll recognize that we have sin, but we'll also recognize that we're forgiven, as, he, as John writes in, in 1 John 2.1. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, and he said in the verses before, you, you will sin on occasion, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. And so one sign is that our attitude towards sin will begin to change. But where we once loved sin, we'll now begin to hate it. Another sign of our authentic faith is a love for God and a love for fellow believers. Our love for God is exemplified in a change in our perspective towards sin and our desire to keep His commandments, which John says isn't a new commandment. It's not something new that I'm saying that you have to do. Rather, it's the old commandment, the one that you've heard from the very beginning, the one that Jesus lived out when He walked on the earth, the commandment to love one another. John says three things throughout, throughout 1 John. He says, your salvation is based on your belief. Your salvation is based on the commandments to love God and love one another. And your salvation is based on the, or your assurance of salvation can be found in the Holy Spirit in your life. He says those things repeatedly over and over and over. And so the, the commandment that God gives us and the change will be that we have a love for God and a love for fellow believers. So another evidence of our true, real, authentic faith is that we'll love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll have a desire to spend time with them. We'll have a desire to meet together. We'll have a desire to worship together and to pray together and to encourage each other and to spur each other on. We'll have a desire to grow together and we'll have a desire to serve each other. John goes on to say, if anyone claims I'm living in the light but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. And so another assurance of our faith is that we'll have a love for God and a love for fellow believers. Another assurance that John gives us is that when a person has a desire to do good things, when before they never would have had that desire. 1 John 3, 7 says, Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. 
But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they are of the or that they belong to the devil who's been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. And I believe this passage here is where things might get, begin to get a little confusing for us. Are we forgiven because we have an advocate who stands before God on our account? Or do we belong to the devil if we keep on sinning? Well, John makes it clear that followers of Jesus will fall. They will screw up. We're going to fail on occasion. We will sin. But he also makes it clear that we have an advocate who stands before God on our account. We also have God's life in us, as 1 John 3, 9 says. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. Another way that that's described or translated in some other versions is that we have God's seed in us. Now, the thing about a seed is that when it's planted, it doesn't automatically turn into what it's going to end up being. You don't plant a, a fruit seed into the ground and then immediately expect that there's a fruit tree there blooming and blossoming and producing uh, full, mature fruit. What happens with a fruit, a fruit tree? You plant the seed. And then maybe in a year, you're going to see a little bit of a seedling. It might not even be distinguishable from other seedlings that you see planted. And then over time, as, you, as it's nurtured and as weeding happens and as it's, as it's uh, taken care of and it's pruned, it grows and it becomes a little more recognizable. But it's not for years and years until a, a fruit tree actually produces fruit. And the scriptures repeatedly speak of what Christ does in a believer's life in terms of plants and trees and fruit. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think it's there by error. I think it's for a very good reason. I think it's because it takes time for holiness to grow in a person's life. And what John goes on to explain is this, that those who have been born into God's family will not practice sinning. He talks about being born into God's family. When a baby is born, it takes time for that baby to develop. Unless you're born uh, of Mork from Ork, where you're a full-grown baby when you're born, it takes time for a baby to develop into what it's going to become. You don't have a child and expect the next day that it's going to be walking and it's going to be talking and it's going to be feeding itself. And then uh, the next day it's going to go out and it's going to start earning a wage and babysitting and move out on its own and become the full person that it's going to be. It takes time for a baby to develop into the person that it becomes. And over that time, what eventually happens is that it practices certain habits, certain characteristics, certain values. It has certain habits that it's going to get into. And those habits and characteristics and personality traits are all things that take time to develop. And they're things that we can instill into a child to help them develop um, good character traits and skills. But they'll only come as a result of time and a result of repeated practice. And it's the same way when someone is born into God's family. Being born into God's family isn't a term that's, that, again, that's thrown into scriptures just haphazardly. It takes time to practice and develop the life that God desires. G John says you can be assured of your faith if you practice 
living the life that God desires. You're not going to get it right from the very beginning. It takes time to eventually get it right and to become more and more holy. But John also says that those who are truly followers of Jesus do not make a practice of sinning. If you look at a dictionary definition of practice, it says this, practicing is to perform an activity or exercise a skill repeatedly or regularly in order to improve or maintain one's proficiency. It also says another definition is to carry out or perform a particular activity, method, or custom habitually or regularly. In essence, what John has said is, certainly followers of Jesus will mess up. We have an advocate who stands before God on our account because of that. If you want evidence that your faith is real or true, your attitude towards sin should change. It should be moving towards hating sin. It should be moving towards the life that God desires. It should be moving towards obeying his commandments, namely the command to love God and to love each other. If you're not practicing living the life that God desires, instead if you're practicing or habitually or regularly performing or trying to improve or become proficient at sin in your life, there's no assurance that you stand before God um, accepted. Paul says it like this in Galatians 5, 19 to 26. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. And he lists a whole list of certain character traits. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying if you practice sin... If you try to be commit to make sin a habit in your life, if you try to become uh, you know, proficient at sin, if your life will become characterized by certain qualities. You'll, become, you'll be immoral. You'll be impure. You can be sure that you're going to have outbursts of anger. You're not going to get along with people. You'll be selfish. And the list goes on. I think you get the picture that if you practice at those things, that's what you're going to become good at. You become good at the things that you practice. But Paul goes on to say, when we have God's love in us, when we have God's seed in us, the Holy Spirit will produce another type of fruit. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and the desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And this, this leads to the final assurance that I want to draw your attention to from, uh, from 1 John, and that is the confirmatory presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be starting a series on the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to go too in-depth into this. But there are certain things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives that help to confirm that we stand assured before God, to help to confirm that our salvation is real and true. And one of those things is the fruit that Paul talks about in the passage that we just read. As you allow the Spirit to move in and to take control in your life, you'll become more loving of those people that you might not have even been able to tolerate in the past. 
As you allow the Spirit to move in, you'll begin to experience more of the true joy that only comes from a relationship made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. You'll begin to experience peace that passes understanding in situations where you never would have had peace, where you would have had turmoil in the past. You'll begin to experience uh, situations where you once might have blown your lid. You'll begin to experience more patience. Kindness will become a distinguishing characteristic of your relationship with others. You'll begin to demonstrate more goodness in your actions and your attitudes and your relationships. You can expect to become more faithful in the things in life that matter. You begin to deal with others more gently, and you can expect to become more mature and more self-controlled in your faith. And finally, John says that we can know that God is alive in us because the spirit that he gave lives inside of us. In other words, not only will the Spirit change our lives and our values and our attitudes and our actions, but the Spirit alive in us will be a witness to our spirit that we are children of God. God's Holy Spirit inside of us confirms to us that we are children of God. I want to finish just by saying that when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not going to get to the pearly gates without messing up somewhere along the way. Someone once said that being a Christian is much like this. You accept Jesus, and then you're going to fall, and you're going to ask Jesus to pick you up, and he'll pick you up. And then eventually you're going to fall again, and you'll ask Jesus for help, and he'll pick you up. And eventually you'll fall again. And he'll ask Jesus to pick you up, and he'll pick you up. And that can continue on and on until we reach heaven. And what happens is we know that we're all going to mess up. And what happens sometimes when you fall or when you fail is this. The devil's going to walk up behind you, and he's going to say, Oh, you can never be forgiven for that. But that's not what John says. John says that we have an advocate who stands before God pleading on our behalf, making us acceptable before God. So if you have doubts or if you allowed the enemy to rob you of the joy of knowing that you stand accepted before God because of what Christ Jesus has done, you just need to confess that to God. Make things right with him. Sometimes it might involve another person and you might have to make things right with them. But when you've done that, Get on with life. It has nothing to do with your eternal destiny. The Bible says when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. And now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. The good news is this. Jesus has conquered death and sin once and for all. All you have to do is believe. All those little bumps along the way have nothing to do with your eternal destiny. He didn't say, I give them eternal life, and as long as they don't ever mess up again, they can come to heaven. It's not what he said. He said, I died once to break the power of sin. And what is the power of sin? It's the power to keep us separated from God. But when Jesus died, he broke the power of sin to keep us separated from God, and he stands before God as an advocate on our behalf. Eternal life starts the moment that you believe, the moment that you accept Christ's sacrifice for you, the moment you put your trust in him. And it isn't 
interrupted. Eternal life is just that, eternal, from now forevermore. It starts and it has no end. And so what I want you to leave here today knowing is that if you are a child of God, I want you to know that you are accepted. I want you to know that you are his child. I want you to know that you are accepted before God because of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that you have been forgiven. I want you to know what your eternal destiny is. And I want you to know that none of that has anything to do with anything that you have done. It has everything to do with what Christ has done for you. And if you're here today and you don't have that assurance, have a look at the back of your bulletin or talk to someone who you came with today. But if you didn't come with anybody or you're a guest and you want to talk to somebody, there's a bunch of people on the back of the bulletin who would be happy to talk to you. Or come and talk to me and I'd love to talk to you about it as well. Because we know that when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, not only will he change our today, He'll change our tomorrow, and He'll change our forever. And praise God for that. Can I pray with you? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it, it shows us all that You've done for us throughout history. We thank You that it shows us that we can have faith in You, and we can have faith in Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross. And we thank You that it tells us that He stands before You on our behalf so that we don't have to live life in fear that we might mess up. And that uh, we thank you that your word tells us that when Christ died and went back to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us and to confirm your presence in our lives and confirm our salvation. And I thank you for those that have trusted in you today and for those that haven't. I trust that you would speak to them, that you would convict them, that you would uh, uh, give them the courage to talk to somebody about what they can do to secure their eternal destiny and to make their relationship right with you because it's only um, something that you can do. And it's, we, we ask all this and pray in your name. Amen.